Welcome to the Real Estate Addicts Podcast. This is episode number 27 with your hosts, Mark Svatsky from Choose Boston. Ray Herto, HRV Homes. Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. And joining us today is our guest, John Cafe from Boston University and Cushman and Wakefield. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming out here today, Jonathan. Oh, it's a pleasure. So why don't we start? How just, do you, Mark, yeah. how do you know Jonathan? Good question. <laughs> so I was working at Suffolk Construction about six years ago, and I knew I wanted to transition onto the development side. And so I started looking around for, I knew I had a good story to tell as far as the sticks and bricks and nuts and bolts, but I didn't quite have that knowledge base of the, the development part. And so as I was interviewing and talking to folks, that quickly became apparent. And BU offers programs um, in the evening. And uh, I found my way there at, for a real estate finance certificate program. And uh, Professor Keefe's class was the first one I took, and I've recommended it uh, ever since. And how did Mark do? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I am under oath to not to disclose uh, it's like any... A violation. It's a, it, yeah, if it was healthcare, for sure it'd be a HIPAA violation, but it's, it's some other violation, so... Um, well, but he passed the course. I well, will. I, I will say he did. He did pass the class. That's the most important part. Did you get, did you get your certificate? I, I don't think I ever finished the certificate. <laughs> so he can't really complete things. Yeah, but he yeah. did get my class done. So. Well, that's good. D's get degrees though, so there's degrees. that. But I think <laughs> we're happy to report Mark has finished actual projects. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's, he's doing well as a developer. No, but going back, the the program was awesome in that it kind of really gave me a good filing cabinet. So I can't say that I came out knowing everything, but at least you have this baseline of knowledge where someone says something to you and you, it, it's not the first time you're hearing it. You have a way to sort that information and kind of build a practical knowledge. So uh, what were some of like the main takeaways from the course that you learned? I think the biggest thing was just, we we're talking about earlier, which is how to compare pitches. So if you go and see three buildings and you want to put them side by side by side, what are the metrics by which you're going to use to compare opportunities as you see them? And maybe that's IRR, cap rates, cash on cash. We can talk about a lot of those things as, as we go. Perfect. Nice. How did I do? Is that a good synopsis? That, that is very good. Yeah. So it's all, you know, I, the class is a lot of metrics, but ultimately about decision making and, and how do you use numbers to help you make decisions. I mean, let's not beat around the bush. We're not in this as a charity. And if we don't do it the right way and we lose money, the business goes out of, <laughs> we go out of business pretty quickly. So it's, this is probably one of the most important podcast episodes to listen to for those of you underwriting deals. Yeah. So you can so, make things as pretty as they can be, but if your numbers are wrong, yeah, then you don't make anything. A class was like $700 per when I took it. Is that has inflation it's hit not, that? I think it's about, about 800 now, maybe. Okay. So it's still still very affordable, sure. Cool. And you can sort of pick and choose which classes sound of interest. You don't have to go for the full certificate, as I think I proved. Uh, well, that's that's true. There's about 30, 30 classes in the program, and you can sort of... A couple of them do have prerequisites. So my class, for example, the metric, numerical analysis class is mm -hmm. a prereq for several others, only because it's... Kind of hard to have an advanced investment analysis class if you haven't taken, you know, the introductory one and the development class, the same thing. So certain classes, we just want to make sure you have a, 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 some familiarity and comfort with the numbers sure. to just to make it a good experience for everybody. Are you doing anything online yet? Yes, we actually have um, started a couple, a couple few years ago with an online program. It's uh, there's six classes that 
also lead to a certificate in real estate. Mm -hmm. They're different than the ones we have on campus. So the the ones on campus are, as you mentioned, are in the evenings from on Monday through Thursday from 6 to 8.30. We have one uh, class on leasing we do around the weekend, um, all all weekend intensive, if you will. But by and large, they're Monday through Thursday, um, 6 to 8.30 at night. And then the online classes, uh, we run them 12 times a year, six classes. So they all go twice a year. I got my previous employer to pay for it too. Construction win, company. Win. I don't know how I that negotiation <laughs> went. Probably, hey, I'm looking yeah. to do my own stuff on the side. Yeah. Can you uh, pay for this? <laughs> Probably about 67% of the students get reimbursed yeah. by their employer. So no, that's, that's cool. Yeah. I think I sold it as I want to understand the developer's goals, which is a because as a construction estimator, you know, I was across the table Makes from a sense. lot of developers. So yeah. So you can relate. Yeah. Uh, you know, so what, I mean, what got you into, for, I guess, what got you into real estate and what got, what got you into teaching about real estate? I got into real estate, I guess, probably because I got a degree in civil engineering from MIT. And um, I've heard of that school. Yeah, it's a little <laughs> trade school across, <laughs> yeah. the, across the way on in, in, in Cambridge. So I guess when, you know, not thinking about it so much, what my career is going to be in civil engineering. And then, you know, towards when I went to, when I was about to graduate, I went on some interviews and it's funny because young people today are so much more organized and focused. And, and I was just getting out of college going, geez, I got to get a job. <laughs> <laughs> I, I guess I better write a resume. <laughs> and then so um, and I went down and uh, one of the interviews was with the phone company, AT&T at the time, running, uh, working in the real estate department. And uh, one of the, my uh, peers who had graduated six months earlier was already working in the department there. And, and I, Touched base with her. She said, oh, yeah, it's great. You know, do, we run projects and transactions and, um, you know, break them on down. So I interviewed for the job and one thing led to another and I, and I got it. My first role was in, um, I called it, I was called a super manager, which is kind of an interesting concept. Didn't mean I was very good at anything, but just uh, meant that I did a lot of stuff. So everything in Northeast Massachusetts was mine to deal with, except for running the building. So if it was a renovation, new construction, the purchase, sale, lease, uh, right away. I managed all of that, including mm-hmm. the zoning and entitlement work. Um, so, at, you know, 25 years old, I'm you know, spending millions of dollars of other people's money, <laughs> building commercial structures and renovating them and leasing them and transacting them. It's um, a pretty sweet gig out of school, I have to say. It was, it was phenomenal. I say it was a super job <laughs> as a super manager. <laughs> so, and I had, a, we had a good you know, very big in-house team. So I was able to draw upon our, you know, the engineers and architects that worked with me and they men- mentored me, so to speak, and coached me along the way. Um, and so that's, that's how I got started. And it was great. Like I said, I just was able to do so many things. Um, and but the, the other interesting thing was we weren't, we didn't use brokers. So I built the switching center in Carlisle, Mass and in Middleton, Mass, which looked like little houses. You would, probably wouldn't know they were switching centers when you drive by. And that's, because most of them are in, are in residential areas where all the people live, which is where you'd want to switch center for mm-hmm. a phone company. So, but I'd have to go and drive around those towns and look for empty lots, and then I'd go down to the town hall and I'd open up the tax records and figure out who owned it, and go drive up to their door, knock on the door, and see if they wanted to sell the property. So it's a lot like driving for dollars yeah. if yeah. you're a multifamily investor. <laughs> you know, we'll drive around see a dilapidated lot or a vacant house. The technology's come a little further. I have an app called Deal Machine. So I'll take a picture of that house. Google Maps tells it where it is, where the owner's address is. And from one click, it'll send a postcard. Oh, interesting. Well, that makes it a little... See, you guys got it so easy. Yeah, so I know. My day, we had to work. <laughs> yeah, all the assessing stuff wasn't 
online. You had to go into the town halls and pull all the records. When I bought my first rental property, I found in the basement all of these giant three-inch binders filled with MLS data oh. before it was all online. The yeah. MLS. The, the MLS, MLS, right? Yeah. Exactly. Wow. Interesting stuff. I also found a bunch so, of blank checks and I was like, I wonder if these accounts are still active. <laughs> <laughs> right. right. No, I'm just kidding. So you've been at BU teaching for 25 years? Yeah, probably that long. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> How'd you get into that? And um, why do you, you, you have a full-time job at Cushman and Wakefield and you're extremely busy. How I got into it is also an interesting story. So again, I was working for the phone company, AT&T. And um, so AT&T owned all the phone companies in the country. And they had, AT&T was long distance at the time and the New England Telephone, New York Telephone, they were all what they call local exchange carriers. So anyway, there was 22 of these local companies and the long lines and they all have a ton of real estate. So every, every town basically has a switching center in it. You might have a place for a call center for residential or commercial accounts. You'd have yards at distribution centers with poles and wires and cables and such. We had, we had coin centers where we collected all the coins from the payphones. Uh, you know, millions of dollars worth of coins would go through these buildings. What's a payphone? Yeah, it's a thing in your pocket. You just yeah. don't right? you just don't take coins out anymore. <laughs> in fact, it costs a lot more. I think. Yeah. But you know, so there was really a plethora of real estate associated with running the the phone company. And um, so one of the things they did was they would have training centers for guys who twisted wires or climbed poles or ran real estate. So in um, my case, the real estate program was. Uh, all the, all the real estate classes were hosted in Birmingham, Alabama. And um, so in, in, in those days, uh, when that, at that time, I got asked to rota- do a rotational assignment to Birmingham to teach real estate classes. So I took that. It was a promotion and all that sort of stuff. And I was breaking up with my girlfriend. So like, yeah, I go to Alabama. Didn't know what I was in for, <laughs> but um, uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun. But so I ended up teaching classes for people from around the country who would come to Alabama to learn about um, financial analysis and you know, transactions and contracts and such. Watch some uh, Alabama football roll time. You no, know, you know, I never did. I, was, uh, I played a lot of Frisbee. I played ultimate Frisbee. Yeah. So that kept me busy. Um, but yeah, Tide was big. Um, a lot of different culture down in Alabama. But mm-hmm. I, it was a lot of fun. I really, I really enjoyed it. I had a lot of fun traveling around my motorcycle and playing Frisbee and cool. going to Gulf Shores. teaching down there for, for the phone company and then came back to Boston and wanted to continue doing it? Exactly. And Well, I, I came back to Boston pretty shortly thereafter They when AT&T broke up, actually, right before um, I got... I came, in fact, I came back because it was breaking up, which was part of the deregulation of the phone company industry. So one of the... This woman I worked with who was my boss, who was running the... Was still running the real estate school. She came up and joined us up here in what was then 9X Properties, which was the sort of the one of the successors of of New York Telephone, and then with the predecessors, what's now Verizon. This program all of a sudden was orphaned. It had nowhere to go. And, and there was still a lot of, you know, like yourselves, there was still a lot of demand for real estate education that wasn't no longer being met. And um, so she came up and ran the program up here, and she asked me to keep teaching with her. You know, I had my, I was doing transactions and development work at that point, but I would sort of guest lecture or, or run, a, run a class or with her for a day or two. And sometimes we'd suitcase them, we'd go around the country and run them in different environments to, so the demand was still there, but again, the program was orphaned. So have you done your own development? I've done some redevelopments. Um, actually putting a dish on my house right now, and I renovated that two counts. families. So, but I haven't haven't spent a lot of time in development per se. I certainly, 
help manage uh, for my clients a lot of real estate development, but not a lot for my own account. Nice. Is that sort of walk us through a little bit of your day-to-day as a director of real estate at Cushman and Wakefield? I now lead our strategic consulting and financial analytics group at, at the Boston office of, um, of Cushman and Wakefield. And so, you know, in my, my really quick elevator speech is I help people make decisions. Mm-hmm. And there's almost always, there's always virtually a financial backbone to that decision-making process. But because I've you know, built buildings and done transactions and done zoning and uh, I've operated, you know, kind of done everything under the sun in the commercial real estate spectrum, I bring that kind of experience to, you know, sort of make those decisions richer. So mm-hmm. it's not just numbers, but um, all the pieces that make the numbers that go into it. So my day is very, uh, very has varied. In the morning work on a financial analysis, and the afternoon I might work on a, a, a strategy. Sometimes I write job descriptions for people to hire folks to work mm-hmm. for them. So I wear a lot of hats depending on what people are looking for. And who are your clients that are hire, engaging you guys on a consulting basis to help make those decisions? Well, I work with you know a lot of our most of our clients basically, and certainly on the financial analytics, we run the analysis on every deal that gets transacted, whether it be a purchase or sale or lease. So, so we t- I sort of touch everybody and all of our clients, but there'd be clients, a lot of a lot of big household names and a lot of the landlords as well. Out of curiosity, because you're a big uh, commercial brokerage as well, do the sales guys ever approach you and ask for help valuing a property that they are going to take to market? Yes. Um, and also our clients do. So occupiers. So in, in the world of real estate now, you have you know investor, landlords, and occupiers. So occupiers need valuations a lot too, especially under like new lease accounting rules, for example. When they book a lease, they've got to check this. They've got to test whether it's an operating lease or a capital lease, which is probably beyond the scope of this podcast. And <laughs> certainly, I, want, I wanted people to fall asleep. So I don't want to talk about that much <laughs> more. But that's just an example where they might need a valuation done to book a lease. Um, Sometimes they're buying an asset. Sometimes for SEC purposes, they need to uh, have a value. Um, but I, the, all the salespeople come, you know, come to my group to look for insight and advice on a variety of topics. That's good. Nothing, nothing I can't stand more than when I see a listing come on that makes zero sense as far as, you know, capital letters, developers take notice, and mm. then you run the list price. How can I make any money on this deal? Have you given an iota of thought about what my numbers might look like on the other end? That's very, very common. It's unfortunate. It may be common, but it doesn't. I mean, how many deals come across your your plate it, that it, that you that you don't even have to do a sanity check and you just say this isn't going to work? A ton. But I think <clears throat> it's a reflection of the competition amongst. I'm gonna be optimistic about the community and say that it's a reflection of competition for listing agreement and, and sellers who have perhaps unrealistic expectations. So the agent often has to take that price and put it online for a number of days before they can reapproach the seller and say, hey, look, there's no one biting at a thousand bucks a foot. It's not yeah, even yeah, on market yeah. stuff. I see plenty of off market yeah, stuff that's but, still just as bad. Yeah, you know, yeah. I saw something, I was said something the other day that was really, really bad. So, well, I don't think anybody starts low and goes higher. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, it's a strategy. <laughs> we spoke to one, yeah, we spoke to one broker and the, the power listing, if you do it the right way, that's more for sales though, not so much for leasing. I always find that in like a bigger commercial sale process when there isn't a list price per se. Hey, do you have a whisper price? Is there a suggested valuation? And they always seem to have these whisper prices, which are seemingly attractive and draw a bunch of people in because it takes a lot of resources and time to actually get to a comfortable number. So the whisper price is good. It brings in a bit pool of bidders and fast forward. 
I'm never near the whisper price when it comes time. If you're, <laughs> you're always over the whisper yeah, price, right? Well, yeah, yeah. Anyway, my, I, my favorite is the uh, well. This is the potential rent, and you know this place has been mismanaged forever. Oh, right. yeah. These are way below market rate, and there's a reason why. Well, and sometimes it's true, though. I mean, I it is true. I was at a inn in Vermont the other day, and um, you know the couple is throttling back. They're trying to get out of the business, so it's still a very viable, beautiful place. They've maintained it well, but they're just not. They're not trying to keep it full because they're trying to move, move, you know, move out of it. It's not always smoke and mirrors. Every investor's favorite metric, cap rates. I feel like people like it because it's very simple. So we want to... It is very simple. Define what it's used for and uh, how, how it's how, And how banks use... Like, do banks actually use cap rates when they're underwriting deals? A lot of questions now. Yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> so cap rates probably one of the most, in my opinion, most misunderstood, misused terms. I don't think any, nobody ever buys a piece of property with a cap using a cap rate. A cap rate actually is determined after a sale. And then someone backs in and figures out what the cap rate was. And the sale is basically accomplished by using a discounted cash flow model where you look at your purchase price, you look at your renovation, your downtime, uh, brokerage fees, commissions, rollover rents, and you posit some sort of holding period, five, 10, seven years, whatever it might be, and then, a re, and then you sell it. And normally that sales price, the terminal sales price is, is calculated using a cap rate because otherwise you'd have to do another, you keep doing discounted cash flow analyses into eternity. And in fact, the cap rate is interestingly in that it assumes a perpetual cash flow, like eternal, infinite cash flow at that NOI level. So, it, so it's kind of nonsensical on its face, right? Like where, how could you ever have a perpetual infinite cash flow at the exact same level? And for people who don't know what NOI is, and that net operating income. So that's the income after real expenses or security, cleaning, that sort of stuff before debt service and returned equity and reserves. Cool. So it's the distilled cash flow that's available to service all the activities. And I think the reason there's such popular uh, conversation piece or, or tools that if everybody's cap rate is kind of the same. And what I mean by that is if, if I'm selling you a building and I've got all these leases and they require me to pay these bills or do whatever you buy that building from me, you'll have the same obligations, right? So there's no real distinction between my experience of the NOI, at least initially, um, and yours. So we can trade that number back and forth because it, it's, it's, this, it's common to all of us. You're going to inherit that NOI when you purchase the property. Exactly, exactly. Now you might manage it better later and you might position it differently and renovate it and get different tenants and rents. So over time, it could diverge, but in the short time, everybody, if you will, is talking about the same numbers when we talk about cap rate. So it's quite convenient, trade, I'll call it a tradable number. Mm-hmm. But again, on its face, it's kind of absurd, right? Because you're, how would you get an infinite cash flow with the same amount of money for eternity? So the formula that I, I remember from your class is IRV, I equals RV. Yeah, I always meant yeah, Uncle Irv. That was a mnemonic just to remember it. The, yeah. The, yeah, the cap rate is, uh, is R, is R. NOI divided by V is the cap rate. So mm-hmm. we just rearrange the term. So yeah, I is NOI equals R, which is cap rate, times V, which is value. So if you want to solve for value, it's the NOI divided by the cap rate. If you want to solve for the cap rate, it's the NOI divided by the value. So you just move the terms around. But Uncle Irv is the way to remember it. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> from, nice. from a sales standpoint, people are always saying, oh, 10% cap rate, oh, 15% cap rate. They do whatever they can to make it as high as possible, which typically means if we get back to that suspect listing that we initially see, they're minimizing their expenses or the owner for the past couple of years has actually just 
not maintained. Not the maintained building. it, sure. So that's why a site visit is is prudent. And the same thing with checking out what the actual gross rents are versus the actual collected rents, because that's how you begin doing your due diligence to find out what's really under the uh what's really making up this 12% or whatever number they're throwing at you. There's definitely ways to manipulate it from an operational standpoint, especially when you know two years out you're going to be selling it. So you're going to do everything you can to make that that cap rate look amazing and and beef up that NOI. Sure. Well, again, to keep one thing to keep in mind, though, the cap rate is the value is inversely proportional to the cap rate. So, as cap rates go up, values actually drop, and and as they go down, the value goes up. And kind of think of it if you if you're trying to get your money back and you have a high yield desire, then it takes you got to get your money back sooner and faster. If your if your yield is requirements are lower, you can sort of wait longer almost. And, and so that's one one thing to bear in mind. But as I said, I don't think anybody actually buys a building using a cap rate. <laughs> we talk about them a lot and. And again, it's really an appraisal technique after the building is sold. You figure out what the NOI was, you figure out what the value was, and you back to, hey, the cap rate for these kinds of buildings. So it's it's good for sizing the breadbasket, but it's not, to your point, you're going to do all this due diligence. You're going to look at the operating statements. You're going to look at the tenants, the tenant credit, obligations in the lease, termination rights, all these underlying pieces, which you have to make a bunch of assumptions on how those are going to lay out in the future. And then you run your DCF and again, come to an, a number you think will work. And then you, then you get in the negotiation aspect, right? Where you mm-hmm. think that you think it's worth a hundred bucks, but you know, the brokers, you know, whispers that, Hey, it's, you know, <laughs> you, you gotta, you gotta make 120. You're not in the hunt anymore. So you go back and you play with your numbers and you, you, you start fooling yourself <laughs> what they're going to look like. And then you come back, say it's 120, but um, it's, it, it's an interesting number that uh, we, we talk about it. and again, it's convenient to at, at a high level. But in, in, as soon as you want to get into that really due diligence, it's no really not that applicable. So, so in the current market, on in where we are, at least in in Boston, because that's you know, what are typical investors, developers, etc., looking for from a return standpoint? What is that magic number that everyone strives to be at in this current day and age in this market? Well, I think the, a couple of things, quick answer is there's, there's no answer to that question, especially <laughs> the way you worded it, which is, I, um, so if I'm a developer and I'm developing a piece of real estate, I've got a whole different risk profile than if I'm an yeah. investor buying a fully tenanted building. So if I buy the mm. 60 State Street with 100 tenants in there, that I can really predict those cash flows and, and crank them through. And I, you know, all that information is pretty obvious. That's, that's one thing. Yep. If I'm going to build 60 State Street or I'm going to build a tower in Boston, I've got so many other risk issues to think about that it, the idea of a cap rate's really not, oh, it's yeah, not sensical even. So yeah, more so on like the hold side of things. So on the investor hold side, you know, here again, what, what's, what building <laughs> is it? What's the quality? What do the tenants look like? So you can get in the, you know, sometimes you're trading the, you know, four, three to High threes, four percent range, and sometimes they're seven and eight, and you, or higher. So many elements that affect it, which again have nothing to do, are not really something you tie to a cap rate. It's all right. about that due diligence and really running those. Areas. What's the condition of the premises again? What are what do those lease rollovers look like? I hesitate to you know talk about cap rates much, you know, in in the scheme of how you make decisions because yep. it's really just a a way to value a property that's quite sim- overly simplistic, but convenient and simple and, and fast. But at the end of the day, you've got to do a, a DC, a discounted cash flow analysis to really run through and, and make a, a lot of assumptions about what's going to happen for the next five or 10 years be, before you flip it out. And then the only thing I always like to say is 
Mark may remember, the only thing you know about your assumptions is that they're wrong. <laughs> yeah. And then the question is, how wrong are they? And ideally, they're not really wrong, but you, you, they, it, nothing will turn out the way you think it will. So, so in that due diligence process, you're trying to limit the variability or the volatility of those assumptions. Do we want to talk a little bit about DCF and what goes into that yeah, analysis? Can I ask the same? Um, <laughs> yeah. So what's the Boy, is anybody yeah. awake out yeah. there? Yeah. Is, <laughs> well, I'll make, I'll make one comment just on on your point there, John, which is you don't really you don't know what you don't know, or whatever assumptions you make are generally wrong. We had a property that we purchased, and this goes back to probably data being easier to find and updating more quickly, and you know all these things online and all these interconnected systems. So, long story short, we purchased the property, and one thing that we hadn't accounted for was how quickly the taxes would readjust. So the assessor's office is surprisingly good at seeing what you paid for the property and bringing that value, oh, so close, but not over. So you can't do any you kind can't of contest it. You can't right. contest it. And the same, and in this particular case, the property type was a little different. So the prior owner was getting a bit of a deal on their insurance and we weren't able to roll it over. So that was a higher number, but it all translates to the same thing. It, you know, it's, it depends on the size of the project, the size of the property, the size of the deal. And the metrics, I'd say, become more important and more formalized the bigger the deal. You know, if we're talking about like a three to 12 unit building that, you know, new, quote unquote, newer investors would be able to buy, we're not doing DCFs generally. We're, we're putting it into a spreadsheet. We're seeing what the numbers look like. There's a number of tools available online. So is the DCF more for an advanced investor or would this also apply for us and we should be doing it? Bear in mind that our hold periods are generally fairly short. I think that a lot of times we're not necessarily interested in stable assets. We're more value-add investors and perhaps we'll stabilize a building, get rents and then sell the entire thing or maybe condo conversion, which is the ultimate quick play. So sometimes those assumptions... I'd like to think that we're closer on the mark because we're not forecasting year-over-year appreciation for years nine and 10 out where who knows what the economy has done. Right. No, there's a huge difference in those Mm -hmm. two investment strategies. It gets back to why, again, cap rates are almost meaningless in the scheme of things. But, um, you know, a lot of of our clients are much more long-hold investors Mm -hmm. and not, I mean, some are... We'll flip sooner than later, but generally you got to get it up and stabilized. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then so that next buyer is going to run that DCF, and and they'll still run a, a DCF on them because you've got to you just got to track the the timing of the costs and when they when, when they come in and then when the rents and how long the stabilization and the cost to carry interest during construction that you got to factor into that uh, as you go forward. So, mm-hmm. but I hear what you're saying when you're just gonna when you're gonna kind of hit the flip mm-hmm. that you're you're really trying to timing the market too, because you, that window of, you know, that window of selling could close on you and, and all your assumptions could be really problematic. Right? <laughs> so discounted cash flow, if we are going to go down that road. Idea of discounted cash flow is, you know, sort of start a question, would you rather have $1,000 today or $1,000 next year? And you want $1,000 today. Generally speaking, unless you're in a negative interest rate environment, like in Japan, perhaps <laughs> you might run away because you have to pay the bank to hold your $1,000. But Probably, hopefully, we're not seeing that anytime soon. <laughs> Let's um, yeah, so the idea, you know, the the value of something is really just the, the value of its future benefits in terms of today's dollars. So I look at the future benefits as you know, my rent I'm going to collect and the, my my eventual sales price is sort of the two things I'm buying today. 
But since I have to wait some period of time to get those, and maybe I have to invest more along the way and actually to achieve them. So again, maybe I got to fit, fit up my base building. I've got to get the tenants. I got to pay the fees, give them the free rent, give them their TI allowances and all that stuff. So when, you know, when you're talking larger numbers and the, the timing of those cash flows becomes quite important, especially when you look at the carry, if you're, um, if you're not covering your, your debt, you're, you're, accru- you're accreting the, 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 the debt, right? Then that, that becomes an issue because you're owing more and more money over time. So, but then you just lay those, you know, lay out the cash flows and when you think they're going to happen and, and you apply what they call a discount rate, which is the inverse of an interest rate. So instead of taking the money forward in time, like you, we're all used to with interest, we take it backwards in time, which is just kind of negative interest, if you will. And then you get a present value of all those future benefits, which is the rent and sales price. And you compare that to what the cost is. And if that, that discount rate is probably the big question, which is maybe a, a somewhat of a corollary to a cap rate, but it's your desired yield. Often it's determined based on like a weighted average cost of capital. So you would look at your cost of debt, your cost of equity. You that like, was a lot. Can you slow that, <laughs> slow that last part? Sorry. Um, I was following. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so the, so the discount so, an interest rate. So discount rate is the opposite of an interest rate, mm-hmm. basically. So again, a thousand. If I if I gave you a hundred dollars today and then you put it in the bank at ten percent and in, in three years it'd be worth one hundred thirty dollars, mm-hmm. one hundred thirty three dollars. If I promised you one hundred thirty three dollars in three years, the question is, what's that worth to you today? Mm-hmm. So when I compound it forward at ten percent, like the hundred grows to be worth one hundred thirty three. When I discount it. I just divide it by the interest rate versus multiplying it times the interest rate, and I bring that 133 back to today. Mm-hmm. So what I would say is, you'd be if if you truly value your money at 10, percent you'd be indifferent to 100 dollars today or 133 dollars in three years. It's the same to you. So this is used as a way to arrive at a purchase price today based on assumed future cash flows and what's known as the terminal value, what you're going to sell it for, which also takes into assumption you do sell it, and then the time period. That's really what this all comes down to, right? So again, is the today's dollars what are the benefits worth at a disc at a yield I'm trying to achieve, and if the purchase price is is that amount or lower, then that means I'm going to achieve my yield plus some, perhaps. So it, so the, you often hear the term present value, and then you also hear the term net present value. Net present value is it's commonly misused, but it, when you use net present value properly, you, you discount those future benefits, the rents and the sale. And then you subtract your initial investment. And if that number is, is greater than zero, you would do the deal. Because so, that means you've achieved your desired yield plus, plus a penny. It's like a go, no, go. It's a go, no, go decision. It's a very commonly misused. People throw net present value when they mean present value and everything in between. But that's the, the basic philosophy. Is, but you, you kind of have to know that desired yield, which is then thought about isn't just you know abstract. It's like you know what is the risk here? So you know what is my cost of capital going to be? What's my cost of debt going to be? What are the risk elements? Do I want to put a risk premium in there? Um, so it's not necessarily easy to come up with that discount rate. But one example was as I mentioned is a simplistic way to look at it is what you call your weighted average cost of capital. So you borrow seventy percent of the money to buy something and you put thirty percent of your own in there. The debt costs you six percent. Your own money you want to get. 15 on. And so 70% of six is 4.2 and 30% of 15 is what, three, five. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, or a little under five, but, um, you know, add those two together and come out with say an 8% weighted average cost of capital. Interesting. So would you recommend, you know, obviously you're, you're evaluating, you know, multi-million dollar 
or larger deals. Very large deals sometimes, um, yeah. Now, do you recommend, you know, an, an investor that's looking to buy a three-unit building, a six-unit building, would you recommend them running these analyses or do you think that's too complex on a building that's small or a deal that's small? For it depends on what if you're going to. I think if you're going to hold, you 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 definitely like you, the discipline of writing a, a a cash flow analysis or discounted cash flow analysis. I think is really important. One way to think about that is imagine you can't sell it. So you do this deal today, and you think, oh, it's great. I'll put this money in. I'll do this. Da, da, I'll get it rented. I'll flip it, and then the world goes to hell next week, and real estate market, like say in 2009, just stops. You know, nobody's buying anything. Well, now. But they were still renting, though. Those those tenants are most likely, unless the market's really super crazy. But you know, the tenants keep paying rent, but you can't find any capital sources to to take you out on loan, and neither can your buyers. So you might be stuck with that property. So one, it's so it's, so it's kind of healthy to say, if I am not going to sell this thing, what does it look like? Is my cash on cash sufficient? Am I am, am I going to be able to? Make my you know make my bills and 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 go forward, and then then you kind of make just wait for time to to solve your problems. So so running that cash flow analysis at least illustrates to you, hey, if I you know I I know I don't want to be under I don't want to have a debt I can't support with the rents if I can't sell it, and there's a chance by the time you go to sell it that you can't possibly. Mm-hmm. So don't worry about the discount side of it, but at least do the cash flow. Discounted yeah, let- cash flow, maybe that's level two. Cash flow level one absolutely necessary. Yeah, absolutely. Cash on cash. You, you, I was like to. I sort of. I, I, I was with a, a a seller once, driving around years back when I was a young man and worked for the phone company. And, and this person's English wasn't very good, and he didn't understand kind of much what we're sort of talking about. Which I'm not wasn't a, a, a slam on this person at all, but he but he had an interest rate table from the back of a finance book. And it was like the eight percent interest table or whatever, like an, what, like an amortization. Yeah, table. the amortization table, okay. right? And and he would just look at he, you know, he was his, the way he did a deal. He would kind of look at the cost. He'd say, yeah, seventy percent of that is going to be debt. He'd pull up his little table. He would see what the debt was going to cost him. He compare that to the rents in place, and and as long as he could make sense of it and get his cash on cash, okay, he did the deal. And then time, you know, we've been fortunate in Boston where you know pretty much the boats have been the riot, the tides have been raising all the boats. Mm-hmm. At a, you know different rates, but they were not like Detroit, for example, where the tide actually went out and sort of stayed out, or mm-hmm. other you know parts of the city, other parts of the country. So a lot of times, time heals everything. But if you can't make your cash on cash, you can't pay your your, your mortgage, you can't pay your bills, then then you then you got a problem. Can't sell the asset, can't refinance it, can't get cash out of it. Right, it's going into foreclosure unless you can collect the rents to cover your nut. Right. One thing I appreciated about your class was. I feel like you never allowed us just to plug and play into a spreadsheet or use a very advanced calculator. I know that can all be achieved later, but is, is was that deliberate? Just that idea of like understanding the basics that go into each calculation and how it's done before you can just rely on a simple Excel spreadsheet? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think if you recall, I also really try to use a lot of different terminology, talk about what interest-only loans look like, you know, balloons on, on debt. So to, a lot of is just understanding that that terminology and how it applies or gets interpreted in, mm-hmm. into the metrics. But I always like to say, you know, it's easy to do the numbers. It really is. If not, you can you can hire me or Mark or Ray or Dan to do. <laughs> but what's hard to do is come up with the assumption, the right assumptions, and and also how to execute properly. So it, it's 
you know, we, we talked about, yeah, it's all about the numbers, all about the numbers. Like, well, that, well, that's true, but all those numbers are really the outcome of a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have the other things down, like you misunderstand how that property is positioned relative to its peers in, the, in that market, or you misunderstand what that renovation cost is going to be. Even, you know, some, some companies that like who your tenants are could matter because if you have a certain tenants, other tenants don't want to be in the building with them. So for example, if like a government, you might have a government agency in there. Some people don't want to be in buildings that have, you know, uh, the coming and going of folks that might be using like the RMV, for example. Would you want to be in the building with an RMV in it? Mm. Probably not, right? You got lines of people out front, you know, smoking cigarettes, waiting to get their license. Mm. <laughs> You know, so there's all these soft, what I call it. So my first class, I don't talk about numbers at all. I just talk about all the things like, you know, column spacing, you know, ceiling heights, um, you know, HVAC systems, all these things that you, you might take for granted or not appreciate that, geez, if this is a heat pump system versus a VAV or a chill beam, what does that mean to the tenants and their willingness to lease? Because it's all about competing for the tenant, right? That's The tenant is the, the most important part of the commercial real estate industry. Well, I guess real estate in general, is, you know, who's paying the rent? Mm-hmm. And how does this building stack up against alternatives? And then therefore, what rent can I charge relative to the Hancock Tower versus 50 Milk Street? Yeah, no, it's very relatable even to what we do on a smaller residential side. You know, it might not be tenant, it might be buyer, but how does your product stack up to what's being offered in an amenity building? And don't make the mistake to take the comps from Millennium Tower and extrapolate that to your walk-up <laughs> building in the north. You know, it's, Right, or building with an yeah. elevator without yeah. an elevator, right? Yeah. All these things. Yeah. Ceiling heights, sunlight, daylight, views. Yeah, so that's why the, so I think many, the art of, is yeah. is almost as important than the, the numbers. I mean, again, anybody can do numbers and get a spreadsheet and sort those through. But it's all again, we know your assumptions are wrong, but if you don't understand, you have to get the experience to understand what's going to drive the occupant, the buyer's behavior, then you you could be then you could find yourself in some real trouble. So, despite having said all that, we've talked cap rates, and you mentioned cash on cash. Is that a, a metric that we can go into quickly? That's one that I tend to prefer, I guess. You know, cash on cash is kind of what it sounds like. You yeah. know, if, in you normally look at that from an equity position. So post post debt, so you've got a you've, you know got a building that spins off rent. You pay your loans and you pay your operating expenses, and what's left over and what's that yield on your on your investment? If that is reasonable. Then can again back to the idea that you don't you can't sell the property for some reason, mm-hmm. then you're not suffering. And I like but if that's negative, then means like you're and and people do this. We've all seen this, especially in markets like this. People, well, I'll just I'll just lose money for a couple of years, then I'll flip it, and there'll be some buyer who's a, kind of doesn't know any oh. better. And I, I've heard I've literally had people come up to class. You know, it's, not, it's all about appreciation, so I can. Oh, so, geez. and yeah, there's still people who do that though. It's crazy because they all think, well, I'll just, you know, spend, I'll lose money for a year or two while I fix it up, flip it out. And then some other, somebody else for some reason will come bail me out. And, and can only force so much appreciation is the thing. Yeah. I well, come- you can't force it at all, right? It's really market. The market drives the appreciation. Sorry, what <laughs> I mean is by making improvements in the building and there's yeah. different spends to achieve those numbers. And you, sure. And like you said, you might be negative on the cash flow side of things, you might as well, might also be spending 10 to make five, which also doesn't help. I had a, so a friend called me about a deal he was looking at in Somerville over the weekend. And his plan was to permit this and then flip the permits. And he said, you know, 
permits are selling for 200,000 per door. So I'm going in with this price. And I said, hold on, stop right there. I'm not going to accept that permits will sell for 200 a door. Let's actually do the numbers as your eventual buyer would to look at what they're going to make on the deal. If 200 a door doesn't make any money, then you're not going to sell it for that. Doors come in lots of shapes yeah, you gotta, and sizes. You got to pretend that yeah. you're the end buyer and yeah. what you're going to actually be buying it for and how much profit you're actually going to be making. Mm-hmm. You know, let's Mark, how do you calculate so on a on a development deal? Mm-hmm. What do what are the criteria for your return on invest? So what mm-hmm. your quote-unquote profit, you know, when you calculate yeah. that number, is it based on uh, how much you're putting in out of cash out of pocket? Is it based on the the resale costs, at, you know, minus how much you're putting? Like, there's so many. I feel like there's so many different aspects that people talk about in terms of quote unquote profit from a deal, you know. And there's so many different metrics that people throw out. You know, I don't. I, it's it's very interesting because when someone tells me, "Oh, you can make X percent on the deal," what does that really mean? A lot of the time, you know, this. You can make 20%. Right. You know? I mean, to, to me, I, I, I'll keep it simple. I like to take my total development cost, which is apprised of three things. Acquisition, hard costs, construction, and soft costs, uh, which include financing, architects, taxes during the hold. All of those things are soft costs. And I take acquisition, hard costs, soft costs. I call that my TDC or my total development costs. And then I figure out my sales. What am I going to get out the back end? And this is for a sale play, a condominium flip. And I'll take my total development cost less my sales. And then I will, that's my profit. And I'll take my profit over my total development cost. And that fraction yields a percent. And I I like to be at 20%. I don't know if there's any science there, but it's worked for me. And Well, it's enough cushion to weather any kind of downside risk, whether that's due to excessive but, construction costs or market changes. But we talk about this often, the idea that don't don't look at it an absolute value. That sales number can be very big, but that sales number will slip very fast. So deals slip on the margin, which is why I like to I like the 20%, not just the chunk number. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't appreciate that. You know, that's that's those are pretty reasonable numbers and you know 15 20% again, yeah. you're, you're working on a smaller scale yeah. and and a little maybe less volatility in that that exit strategy but most developers are looking for those kinds of yields so and people are oh my god that's so high I say well yeah but look at all the risk you may because by the time you get done two years you know a year or mm-hmm. two from now right who knows what the market's going to be who knows what interest rates are going to well, be the scary yeah. thing is though is people are taking a lot less these days well, that's that's the hard thing. It's hard to find a deal because, and and that kind of gets back to my earlier thing. People are saying, "Well, I'll just do it like a, you know, it's, it's crazy, just kind of crazy." Yeah. Well, you fool yourself too, and you get caught up. You know, there's the whole buyer's remorse, right? As the price goes up, and you keep you know go back and new. You're not well. Maybe I can do this. Like, oh, I won't put that. Don't put the marble in. I'll put the corian in. Yeah. You know, and, and you know that work. You know, it's you know. So you, you, you that's the, probably one of the biggest risks in real estate is getting is marrying the property, you know, and getting too falling in love with it. And and it happens on commercial side too. People just get very caught up and they say, really got to have this building for one reason or another. And because it it does become emotional. um, Yeah. Uh To a lot of buyers, you know, the, the boss says, Oh, I need, I want, I just have to have that building. And, um, you know, the, the good then, news... But in, they always think, a lot of people are thinking that the market will bail them, bail them out. Because it has, because they've been lucky. Well, the other thing interesting in the commercial space, which is not really the same for the like, condo buyer, because this is a big, a big investment if this is your home and your... But in the commercial world, you know, real estate's a, 
in the scheme of things, a small part of doing business, generally speaking, especially in, in a, a, a knowledge worker industry. So um, I have a little, my mnemonic is, you know, it's $50 a square foot for rent on the ground and it's $500 a square foot walk around on top of it. Mm-hmm. So I, my real estate more, and, and you see a lot of this today. I mean, you know, you, we, you, when talking about investors and especially small investors, it's really so super important that these numbers work. Otherwise we, you know, we could go bankrupt and you know lose everything we've built, you've, you've tried to build, right? But if you're a, a company with a lot of money in the bank and cash and, and, you know, what are you trying, you're making a widget, right? And, you know, you're producing something in this real estate. So how do you produce that? Well, you get all these people to show up to make the widget, whatever it is, financial services or insurance or, you know, consulting or whatever it might be. So that real estate, again, maybe being five or 10% of my overall costs, I can almost afford to be off by a couple of percent, mm. most, especially if I now am in the right market with respect to the labor and the attraction of that labor. I've got a building that people want to work in. So we see a lot of this now and then, you know, what's the hip, you know, like that we're, you know, Fort Point Channel here, right? And, you know, all these old brick and bean buildings where, you know, going for 25 bucks a foot and all of a sudden two years later, they're going for 50 because they, People say, oh, this is so cool. It's brick and beam and we'll get all the millennials will come in and they'll hang out and we'll just still work all night long and play ping pong. And, <laughs> uh, you know, it, but it's sort of true too, to a degree versus, you know, some, you know, building in another part of town that doesn't have a cachet, doesn't have the amenities. So there's so many elements in the commercial world that go into driving the business, you know, the production of the widget that in the real estate's part of it, but it's not necessarily as super critical to have exactly the right number. Yeah if you get that right culture and blend of activity that creates a productive and, and robust working environment. That context is really helpful. I hadn't thought of it that way. In five minutes or less, explain IRR. <laughs> well, to, to the extent we didn't, we were all falling asleep talking about discounted cash flow analysis, the IRR is just going to be the icing on the cake because um, when we, as I was saying earlier, when you do a, a net present value analysis, you run all those future numbers and then you discount them at your desired yield and you get a present value of the benefits, you compare that to your cost. And if the benefits are at least equal to the cost or more, you've made the yield and you're happy. The IRR is just a discount rate that makes those present values equal your cost. And so it's kind of it's kind of a so letdown odd. when you find that out. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> like, it sounds like this really cool thing. But it's basically, it's like, it's a trial and error calculation that says if I have a certain amount of rent and I have a certain sales price and I'm going to buy the building for $100, what in- discount rate do I have to use to get that to equal my purchase price and then spits it out of your calculator, your computer. And it's, it's a proxy for what you call an average annual yield. But remember that a lot of that discount rate is, is baked or is baking the sales, the future sales price into it. So you may have, you could have, put it this way, you could have no cash flow or negative cash flow for 10 years, show a sale for a lot of money in year 10, and have an IRR of 10% and say, well, I'm making 10% per year, even though every year I'm losing money until the year I sell it. So that's why I, people don't tend to hang on these numbers. You really have to look behind the curtain and see what's going on and you know, where those cash flows are coming. Where my, do I have a big rollover risk in a couple of years out where I've got to come out of pocket millions of dollars to pay for you know, new TI and commissions and downtime and all that? So again, the IRR is the discount rate that causes the net present value to be equal to zero. Do you have any quick hits for our listeners as far as sort of ratios or 
numbers that underwriters like to see from banks or things which we can kind of quickly rely upon as rule of thumbs. For example, you know, maybe a debt coverage ratio. Is there a number that you like there? Is there a cap rate? Uh, We've already talked about cash flow, yeah. Yeah, so well, debt debt coverage ratios, um, again, this all gets back to what is the status of the property. If it's a stabilized, fully leased, downtown, high-quality asset, debt coverage ratio could be, you know, one, two. And if it's very, you know, sketchy, volatile, risky deal, might have trouble getting any debt at all, much less uh, with, with a coverage ratio. So it, it it's it, it, like anything; it's all a function of the underwriting, what the what who the tenants are, and what what the rents are, and what the building quality is, and the condition that will fact factor into that. So there's no sort of stamp, you know, stock number that mm-hmm. you would just say, okay, that's what it is. And you'll see it vary by asset type. So obviously, like hotels, a lot of volatility, a lot lot more risk. Um, you see those, you know, the debt coverage ratios could be, you know, much higher and, you know, approaching two in some cases. Ready for a quick game of overrated, underrated, or appropriately rated? Okay, I'm I'm ready. I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I don't get tripped up on this. All right, first one is uh, WeWork. Well, you know, it's interesting. I know the whole co-working thing is kind of interesting and that's the Reason co-working has been successful is also the very reason it's you know it's high risk. So in a in in a increasing uh, economy, it's a wonderful thing, right? I mean, if I so if I want to go into Seattle and open up a shop, I can go to a co-working place and I can try I can test it, you know, and I can go for a little six month short term lease, put a few people in there, see how we go, get some traction, maybe uh, take some more space, and eventually if I have like 50 people say, well, why don't I go get a real deal, real space, my own brand and space and all that. So it's a great way to test the waters and be flexible and, and such. The downside is in a, drop, in a declining economy, when I'm, again, back, remember the occupiers are what drives commercial real estate, drives all real estate, right? The only, the only time real estate really makes money on its own is when it's for agriculture, right? That's the only time the, the real estate actually makes the widget the beans or the pistachios, whatever. The rest of the time, there's widget making inside the real estate, right? Whether it be healthcare, hotels, distribution. So remembering the occupier is the, is, is, is the driver of the whole thing. So economy shifts. Everybody says, oh, we got to cut our costs. We got to downsize. We got to cut our... Well, if I have a bunch of fixed leases, which generally a lot of companies will, I can't change those overnight. I might have to wait years for them to roll over, expire, and it'd be hard to sublease it because everybody else is trying to get out of the space too. So the market kind of grinds to a halt. So the only place I'm going to be able to cut my cost is in the short-term spaces that you find at a at a co-working environment. So I think that's what the risk a lot of folks are seeing, especially as you get on the edge of a recession where, you know, hopefully not, but to the extent we all expect and always seems to have been and will probably always will be slowdowns and cycles. The first thing you're going to cut is this what you can, and that's going to be the short-term space. So I think that's what has caused all the um, angst in the in, in the, the WeWork are. IPO and such. Is that uh, people are looking at that and are going, you know, there was a great idea a few years ago yeah. when, whether, when there was no end in sight to the northeast slope. Uh, but if there is a if we're going to get on the other side of the hill here, that'll be the only place you, from a real estate perspective, where you're going to cut people, and that, that's the big nut, and you'll cut your real estate costs, and you're going to get out of the short-term deals first. Because you're stuck with the long ones. Good answer. How about malls? I'm probably the worst person to ask about malls oh, as far as a personal opinion okay. goes. Um, yeah, that's fine. Because I just hate those places. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like to shop. Yeah. I don't like to, but... Um, well, we've uh, all heard about the death we, of the mall. Yeah, the the mall the, there, there's actually, yeah, there's actually websites, dead malls, you can go online. Because and, yeah. and, there have been dead malls for a long time. 
you know, for a lot of a lot of reasons. And I think that the trick with malls, I mean, I, I mean, I, I guess I'm I'm not bullish on malls, but the well located ones. And here again, it's something where it's it's about the mix. You know, it's about getting the right cachet going. Has to be convenient. Parking's good. You've got the right kind of again that mix of retailers in there. By and large, you've, you know the you know, women seem to shop more for the you know with the raising families or because like, I go to a mall, I do all I see is women's shoe stores and clothing yeah. stores. Like, there's not right. Where's the arcade? I always want to play Pac-Man <laughs> or something, you know. But there's a, a place for them. I think the the big strategy in retail that uh, uh, it was Nordstrom kind of did first or pioneered, if you will, was is integrating the online with the storefront presence. You know, for a lot of for a long time, it was all storefront or online. So you you bought something from you know LL Bean's online catalog. You, you go to the LL Bean stores. Hey, I want to bring this back. Oh no, you got you got to send that back online. And Nordstrom cracked the nut. Say, hey, if you buy it online, return it here. You buy, you bring it here. You can send it back. It's the, and because it also got very difficult to measure performance in the store when you had stuff coming in that was someone bought online, but it wasn't sold there, uh, and it became difficult for the malls to figure out what to charge in percentage rent. So the, the smart retailers have downsized their footprints to make them more showrooms, knowing that a lot of people are just going to come and play with the merchandise, you know, check it out, whatever, and then go home and order online, hopefully from them. We're seeing that now. I mean, Casper, online mattress retailers, now has storefront locations, Amazon, obviously. But what they found is that online retailers have a much higher incidence of returns. And they would much prefer that you bring your merchandise back to a physical store and walk in and perhaps see something else on the way in or out and buy that. I feel like the latest latest trend in the whole retail, retail space is these kind of creating these kind of you know, one-stop shop, live, work, oh, yeah. play in this one, like assembly row type mm-hmm. environment where you have, you know, a bunch of condos, a bunch of apartments, you have your CVSs, you have a, a, a supermarket. So the buzzword you know, is, is placemaking. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Not a, micro, yeah. My, not a micro neighborhood as I would call it. It's not as no, it's, sexy, it's, huh? It's called... So it's called placemaking. Yeah. I think you're right. I, although, no, I, it, wasn't it the Natick Mall that they built some residential? Yeah. Yeah. That one, I didn't go so well. I heard. I, I, well, I kind of, my opinion, and I've never visited, so I'm just making this up. But I, I heard it didn't go so well either, which kind of makes sense because you're not like if you go to the, one of these festival marketplaces with this, you know, you you park your car and you you're outdoors. It's a little kind of crappy in the winter when it's cold, but um, you know, you walk around like a, a quote unquote village. It's not yeah, a village because yeah. it doesn't look anything like a village, but they try to make it villagey feeling. And the, the mix of the stores is, you know, you can go bowling, you can buy some food, you can, you know, get your pet food and all that sort of stuff. I'm thinking like Linfield Market Square is a good yeah, example. Exactly. The there there is a lot more appealing than dumping into a, a enclosed mall, right? Where mm-hmm. you know there, it's yeah. not like you're even outside and there's no fresh air. So mm-hmm. I think that might have been one of the challenges is that it wasn't this amenity area; it was just the mall that you ended up dumping into. And it's like if I want to go out for a walk, walking through the mall is not really where I want to. Yeah, want to yeah. be. The retail establishment that gets a lot of credit lately is uh, Under Armour, because the idea is they are they're making a place that is super cool to go to. Literally, they have a freezer room where you try on their winter coats and you cold, stand yeah. in this. And like, you know, so it's those kinds of experiential things that you can't get from, you know, underarmor.com. Yeah. People right, want but, that. Yeah. yeah. Experience is a big part. I mean, look at Bass Pro and all that. You, yeah. can, you get lost in there and have it's fun. Yeah. It's fun. <laughs> and it's the way, the way a lot of these retailers are creating the spaces too. 
You know, it's a really cool looking space and the way they display their product mm-hmm. is really cool. And you can, t- what going back to the Instagrammable mm-hmm. type atmosphere that you want to be in, you know, that's kind of driving the new retails. Right. But you still have to remember the online. I mean, look at Staples is reducing the size of their stores, for mm-hmm. example, because people aren't coming to Staples to buy stuff. They're coming there to check it out and, and usually they're buying it online. Yeah. The same way. And yeah. Staples has gotten more into the services side of things too. So now I think they're fixing all kinds of phones and they're doing yeah. you know your copies and yeah. a lot of other things that you definitely can't go online to do. Wow, this is a very pretty big uh, deviation from yeah. just starting out with malls. <laughs> so let's keep it. Good, let's good keep question. the ball rolling. Dan, uh, Dan you got anything? Uh, transit oriented development or real estate? Transit oriented real estate. Uh, certainly in this city, super super hot. You know, idea because. I, I I don't know if you guys noticed, but the problem with Boston is we only have three roads in and out, Pike, 93 North, 93 South. And even when you're in downtown Boston, there's only a couple of roads that take you anywhere. You know, if you're, you got to go, you got to go down State Street, and you got to go down um, to pick up State Street to go up to across town. So everybody's, we funnel everybody into just a couple of roads, Congress Street on the way out. And the gridlock has become impossible now. I, I walk to North Station and I walk a lot faster than anybody can drive. It takes me 15, 20 minutes to walk, but you can't get there in my car any faster. So I think it's just becoming more important. But the challenge, though, is that our, what is the transit systems are so far behind and some are totally broken. It's like, for example, the Green Line is just, it's broken. You go to Park Street and, uh, at five o'clock and try to get on a Green Line and you have to become very rude. Otherwise, you will never get on a train. That's unpleasant. And then, and then, the, then, and you can, and you can walk. I, I go to BU, of course. I could walk to BU faster from Park Street on some days because it's, I prefer to get in a train and it's, and it, then it's like a traffic jam in the tunnel, like the A, B, C, D, E lines, whatever. They're all trying to go um, to this, you know, up the first part of it's all common. So, and, uh, and the doors are on, you get on one side of the door and it opens on the other side, you can't get off. So that takes five minutes to get people on and off. So, it can take you half an hour, 45 minutes to go from Park Street to BU campus. So I'm, I'm a big hope, hopeful. So back to transit, I think my big hope is that um, we tear all those things out and we go to on-demand, small, autonomous vehicles running on those tracks. Hmm. So much like an elevator, you go to a lot of downtown uh, you know, new buildings, you just punch in your floor and it says get an elevator A, right? You punch in where you want to go and it says get on car 26. We have a couple of lanes, so the... the Drop-off and pick-offs can be very automated, and we use those lines as a much more dynamic form of transportation rather than putting everybody on the same train, even though I may be only going on one block or I'm going 50 blocks. So I think there's an opportunity to change the transit, but so it's going to be a long, a little bit of a, a transition time. Now, that said, I think the commuter rails, and look at North Station, you know, Boston Properties says, you know, like 67% of the transit lines yeah. can get to North Station. And you see what's going on down there with the the hub and all that. Um, it's really, I'm a big fan of transit-oriented development. And I think as Boston... It's so underrated. <laughs> well, I think, I think it depends on the line, right? So overrated no, it's, in some it's spots all and underrated. underrated. It's all underrated. Mass transit is underrated. I think and we, we just, need more commuter rails. We need cheaper commuter rails, more frequent. There's, you know... Yeah, my pet peeve, and one, one thing too, is just like the... You talk to people who drive, you know, they'll say, well, you should pay the full price of your commuter rail. I said, well, you don't pay the full price of your highways. Oh, yeah, I do. I pay gas taxes. Yeah, and that's like 10, 15% of the cost of the highway. The rest of it I paid for. Yeah. So, you know, we, so we have this, we have a, a sort of a misallocation of, of benefits and costs. And, 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 you know, since we're such a highway driving culture, I think we've lost track of the fact that so much of that's subsidized through our normal taxes. Gas taxes don't cover. And then people lose their minds when the MBTA wants to raise the fare, like, 
five cents. I know. Or the gas tax yeah. or any of that. Yeah. yeah, we could go off on multiple yeah, yeah, tangents. Yeah, yeah. All right, yeah. <laughs> Let's keep this uh, train moving L- forward. L- L- intended. Uh, underrated, overrated, appropriately rated, Boston College. Jeez. <laughs> oh, <laughs> In regards to, no, I, I think know, you get a great education. Question. I think it's, you know, I think it's well rated. I mean, I, I have no issue. I don't know what. And B real say. estate program? That is, well, it, it's super underappreciated, but it is super good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, where it's a great, you know, it's, I, I, have, I have to put in a pitch. I mean, there yeah, really please. is, there aren't really many other programs using learn so much in such a short period of time for such short money. I tell all the instructors, the only things you have to teach people is something they can use the next day on the job or something that helps you get a raise or a promotion or make a deal. Or get hired. Or get hired. Yeah. yeah. And that's served us really well for a long time. And, and, and say one of the, I, I, you probably remember those Visa commercials in the old days when they show the, the guy and a girl walking up to the doorway and, and then it says like, you know, flowers, $15 and, you know, dinner, $27, kiss at the end of the night, priceless, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. And um, so I have that happen to me in my class. I don't get kissed at the end of the night. <laughs> <laughs> but no, people come up to me with their, their big smile on their face, like the fifth or sixth class, you know, have a spreadsheet in front of them, they'll hold it and say, look what I did. And they say, oh, what is that? And they say, oh, I said, it's analysis I did. And I said, oh, that's, that's great. And he says, I showed it to my boss and they said, where'd you learn how to do that? And they said, I learned in this class, you know, and they just, they're so happy they've got a skill in, in, in six or eight weeks that they can really use to help them, you know, in their careers and, and what they do or their jobs. And, and, and that's the way our program is. Yeah. People just go home with a lot of skills very quickly that they can put to work either in what they currently do or learn something new if they want to switch jobs and such. So yeah. it's, a, it's a great program. No, it's absolutely real. And um, I'd second all of that. So What's next on the lightning round? Uh, two more. Mark, I'm only asking this because you have this here. Argus cash flow modeling. Okay. Um, Argus is very good for a very, very, very small group of people. Overrated. <laughs> it was on Mark's list, so <laughs> yeah, I've got to ask you about it. I don't yeah, even know what so it is. So Argus is um, is a software tool. If you Imagine you buy the John Hancock Tower, whatever it's called today. Yeah. Uh, 200 Clarendon Street, I guess, technically is the address. <laughs> I always notice that you always call a building by the prior owner, not the current one. So it's, <laughs> if, the Sears Tower. It, yeah, right. Exactly. If the Smiths live in the house now, it's always called the Joneses house because they were there before. And once yeah. the Smiths leaves, it then becomes the Smiths house. So, <laughs> so I always call it the Hancock Tower. That's but true. <laughs> in any event, if you look at 200 Clarendon Street, that, I don't know how many tenants. Let's say you have 200 tenants in there and you were going to buy 100 Hancock Street. How would you model the cash flows for 200 tenants that have different rents, different base years, termination start dates? It's pretty arduous. So Argus allows you to drop all those tenants into a program designed to manage it. It's kind of a glorified spreadsheet. But And then what the, the other interesting thing is for buyers and sellers is they will actually give the, the... So the owner might give the Argus runs to the buyers because now all those leases and their start dates, termination dates, rents, space years, and all that are already in there. So it saves the buyers a hell of a lot of work to have to read... 200 leases or 200 lease abstracts, create a big giant financial model, and then go figure out what they think it might be worth. You kind of leap, you can jump right, you can move forward a lot faster. Funny though, so when I was at Ernst & Young for a bit as a consultant there, we would, we'd be hired by some investors to audit the Argus runs. So we would take the, you know, audit, auditing is usually like the 80-20 rule. You'd go take the 80 biggest leases and you'd check what the terms are. And then you go look in the Argus run and make sure they tied out. Um, so you say, yeah, 80% of the money seems to tie to these leases uh, as a way to, you know, for a due diligence. Just right. one so step of due it, diligence. Right. Yeah, you can trust it. When you can spend hundreds of millions of dollars for something, you kind of want to make sure you're, <laughs> you got the numbers right. So, But it's a good tool for very, very few, very limited people. I mean, it's most you guys certainly wouldn't have any I need t- for it. I took the class. 
Is it more related to just sales and you know no, way no, to present I, things, or is it something that you would use no, if you is, had that kind of complexity as a as a property investor? It is a very arduous way to underwrite a very complicated building. It's for sales and financing, and um, right. So if you weren't selling or financing, weren't selling or buying, you have really not it. much use okay. for it. Good to know. All right, thank you. Last one, Dan. Hotel as a class of development product. It's an it's it's a very unique. Classification. Well, it, you know, one, of course, one piece of that is, you know, for the hotel world is, the, you know, how do, is these the Airbnbs, the VRBOs, and, you know, which is kind of unregulated hotels. I've always, same thing with Uber. I'm kind of like, why am I getting in a car with someone who's not professionally trained? Of course, the, the taxi drivers. I was going to say, <laughs> unfortunately, the fortune of the taxi driver systems around the country, around the world, you know, kind of were asleep at the switch. Honestly, you think about how many years did they have to oh. fix their dispatches or train their their drivers. I mean, some places they have to wear a nice shirt and you know and all that. And you know, the test in Boston, I think, is pretty pretty simple. But had they focused on that service delivery and the quality of the drivers. I don't think Uber could, would have stood a chance because Uber is not priced properly, of course. It's not, it, 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 which we all know now looking at their pricing, but you know, they're losing money still on everything. So, so hotels have a lot, of, uh, a lot of competition, if you will, through this unregulated thing called Airbnb and VRBO, which is, which is great as a traveler. I, you know, I love it and I get to, I like to have homes with, I like to have a place I can you know, have a fridge and we cook something. So, um, so I think that makes it especially challenging. So in, you know, non-high destination spots or, you know, in a place where the demand is built in, it's a, it's a, it's a tricky business and there's a lot of different elements to it. And it's expensive real estate to run. Very expensive to run. And you got to keep it up. You got to refresh it a lot. And uh, the flag is all, it's all about the flag, the reservation system. You know, is it Marriott, Hilton? And that's, you know, and, and there's all sorts of complicated ways that the flags will invest perhaps in the, in, a, in the real the hotel, depending on the quality, location and all that. So it's a, it's rarefied air. I would not ever recommend anybody who's not super familiar with hotels to go start building them. Right. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's tricky because there's, you think of the revenue sources, you have the, the food and bev side, you got the room side, maybe the, you know, the conference room side, um, whatever, maybe entertainment, uh, the whole, there's a whole bunch of rev streams that come through a hotel that mm-hmm. are also tricky. And then of course in Boston, you've just got like you know, January, February, and March, like, who comes here January and February and March, right? Conferences. Yeah. And then and then they're overbooked on, you know, the last weekend of May because all the everybody's graduating. So you can't find a hotel room. And then in January, you can't give them away. So hey, this has been really enlightening. Certainly learned a lot chatting here. Yeah. Absolutely. Thank um, you for coming in. Thank you. Well, so it's been fun. Fun. for a lot longer. Yeah. You guys are fun to hang out with. Hey, Maybe we, we'll do a part B that's not so boring, but that's <laughs> <laughs> I, don't, I don't think this was boring. No, at all. This was I think this people hey. will find this very valuable. If uh, folks have a building that they're looking for some consulting help on or a building to sell, how can they find you at uh, Cushman and Wakefield? Uh, well, I don't know, but I think you go on the website, you look around, but you can, um, you can email me at jonathan.keefe at cushwake.com. How do you spell Keefe? Like O'Keefe without the O. Beautiful. <laughs> and then if, if people want more information about the BU program? They can email me at keefejoe at bu.edu. Beautiful. Or the Cushwake address. I can, I'll get them either way. Awesome. Thank you again. Thank oh, you my guys. pleasure. Thanks, guys. Yep. Cheers. Cheers. Bye now.